When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And even though if you're watching the video version of this, you're still seeing two boxes of people in, in, in a standard Zoom call that we've all come to abhor, we are actually geographically much closer than usual because Ann has come out from Los Angeles to join me on the East Coast for the first in-person film festival in North America, according to Andrew Cuomo, although I believe it's maybe just the biggest. biggest. And that's the Tribeca Film Festival, which has started. And uh, it's exciting, I have to say, just because I feel like I'm back in the thick of a big, crazy festival experience and and contemplating the value of that more than ever before. How's it going for you so far? I just love being in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome home. I'm a New Yorker. I started out here. I grew up in Puerto Rican Harlem on 110th Street and uh, Columbus Avenue across from the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. I was married at the cathedral on the grounds. So I love New York and I missed it. I've been, you know, with, you know, it has been withheld from me for over a year and a half. So I am uh, eager and happy to uh, experience everything. And I just love it, even if it's hot and muggy and, and uh, one of the things I love about the opening night of Tribeca the, in the Heights movie, which I was seeing for the second time, was it just when you look at the movie, it's, it's tactile. You feel the heat. You feel the... It's certainly, yeah, I mean, it is a, a good time for this movie to be looked at. In a New York context, the movie is basically all about how hot it is outside and everyone trying to, um, you know, survived the sweltering heat i mean the blackout that's at the center of the narrative yeah i mean it's all about that and it has deep metaphorical connotations but yeah great new york movie certainly the best opening movie tribeca's ever had as far as back as i can remember and the biggest a huge deal and a fascinating opening night experience because we were in totally different parts of the city you were way down in battery park I was in the Heights. Line from, from it, there is a line from Battery Park to Washington Heights. That's what we were doing. Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was fascinating to to sort of get this sense of of you know who was at which screening. It sounded like even though I I was at the the actual the technically like the actual physical premiere with, with it had the the cast and all that stuff, but it sounds like get into the yeah they they were pretty exclusive about the thing. Yeah. So anyone who got to go to that one was like, well, <laughs> you got into the big to the big screening. I'm an interloper from L.A. And as such, I, I, I settled for for Battery Park. But it was great. There were these nice um, sort of uh, lean back um, lawn chairs, basically, the wooden slatted kind, you know, uh, maybe they were plastic versions. And you could put your cup down, you could put your sandwich down, and uh, they were all spaced in a good way. And there was a great, big, beautiful screen. And it was, um, except for when it was quiet, which is when you heard all the generators 
going. <laughs> Back to the heat. <laughs> yeah, I'm keeping every all the light, all the you know lights on or whatever they needed to to service. And then there was uh, you know the occasional siren or whatever. But as it got dark, the uh, that is a great looking movie. On the second viewing, I actually think even under those, you know, this is not the best way to see the movie. The best way to see the movie, I urge everyone, is to go to a movie theater. Um, but it's it's actually. Um, a gorgeous looking movie. Well, let me let me tell you about my experience because what was so strange about it was so I I assumed we were on the same timeline that the intros would be simulcast and stuff and then you were writing me in in, in my in an hour before the movie w- that that I was watching was out because ours started an hour late and I think it's because of red carpet craziness out front we had Lin-Manuel Miranda, we had you know, John M. Chu and, and all the all the cast, Anthony, where there was a, it was that was their real red carpet. And it was a huge scene outside the um, United Palace Theater, because obviously in that neighborhood, it's a, it, it is the neighborhood of the movie. And Lin-Manuel Miranda is a god there. So you had a really complex kind of Latino turnout of, of fans. And then they probably interfaced with them to some degree. Uh, and um you know, in in the theater, we're like sitting there. I was a couple saw a couple of journalists, some other industry folks around, and um, just waiting for it to start. You start you start to realize that we're in a different climate right now. It was people were were walking in. Uh, they sh- you showed your proof of a vaccination at the door and sat down, and everyone took their masks off, like being at a, a restaurant. So while you were out in, at in the um, it was it was spaced. It was it, we were socially distant. I was seated in a seat and, and saw another journalist I knew like two seats away from me. So they, they did space us out. But people took the masks off when they sat down like you do at a restaurant. That's but we were outdoors. I mean, right. And you were outside. So so there was so there was that first phase of just kind of sitting in the movie theater for an hour or so and being like, OK, I'm in a crowded area and looking at who's in the aisles and there goes a, a famous person. And, you know, that part of the experience starts to come back. Then we get into the intros, you know, De Niro and Rosenthal as the heads of the festival do their whole shtick. Toby, Toby Emmerich from Warner Brothers came out and introduced the movie. It was a real premiere. And yeah. And he pointed out. In its success. Yeah. Well, what this is, it's a launch. It's a marketing launch. Uh, yep. They needed it. They need that for the movie. Burrows, all over yep. the city. There were word of mouth spreading out of these screenings. And for all the all the speculation about the future of Warner Brothers and, and, and all the, the, the shifts going on with Dis- Warner Brothers Discovery now, uh, it does feel like they're leaning into the idea that they have something really special here that they can take some credit for. And Emmerich also pointed out Ann Sarnoff, who was in the audience at, at the screening. So they, they, they did try to really create a real a real show of force behind you know the what they what they've what they're launching here and holding on to the movie for a year as opposed to trying to push it out earlier or put it just on vod was a smart gamble here's what i would say i've seen the movie twice now too you've seen it twice on a big screen i saw it once on a small screen and that and then saw it last night on opening night on a big screen. I would tell people, if you can't see this movie on a big screen, don't wait, t- don't even bother. It's not, it's, I, I honestly had such a better experience on every level experiencing the movie. Obviously the crowd was really lively. I saw a couple so DR notes. I want to know, I mean, did <laughs> they all applaud after the opening number. 
opening number was huge but not even not just it. it was like the moment that you see you know specific characters pop up on screen or like there's a there's a wink and nod to hamilton like the the crowd response on that kind of stuff was big but also just the scale of it like when i watched there's a there's a great um is one of the better known songs in the musical and it's been staged at a pool when i watched a pool scene at home on my TV, it felt like very busy and kind of cluttered, honestly, and maybe a little too heavily edited. I wouldn't say it's a perfect sequence, but it's a lot more fun on the screen because of that, because there's so many dancers and it's edited in a way where there's so much happening. And John, I'm sure, you know, he directed the the Step Up movies and stuff like he needs that big canvas to make that work. And it does work. Exactly what he's doing. I was very aware of it on the second viewing that editing is crucial to this, especially those big musical numbers, because he's got, if you think about it, he has many, 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 many setups. And even in that opening number, when Anthony, I was thinking about it, Anthony Ramos, first of all, it's all pre-recorded, of course, it has to be, but Anthony Ramos, he has to just do little tiny bits as if it's the most natural thing in the world. And he pulls, they all pull it off. There's a lot of direct to the camera setups and um, a lot of point of views. And one of the things they do in the pull sequence is is they take the uh, the wonderful dancer who plays his his love interest and puts put her in a bikini uh, on from above uh, on it's it's Busby Berkeley basically um, only yeah. done in a naturalistic kind of edited way which is a bold move right because for for those of us who treasure you know uh, Footlight Parade or whatever it's like how dare you take that imagery and, and repurpose it you know it's a it, it, it's 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 tricky to to you know recycle off. stuff, but it, great, they're great. The only weakness I believe, I'm curious to hear what you would say. The great movie musicals somehow tell stories with every single song, and there and as much as I love these songs and the the music itself, there were times in terms of the pacing of the movie that I felt like they weren't necessarily progressing in the way that I would want them to. Do, do you know what I'm saying? I think that, that that's a, a key factor that goes back to In the Heights itself, which unfortunately I didn't see when it was on stage. But let's this is a pre-Hamilton work, right? I mean, it was his student project at Wesleyan, and it's it's certainly strong in certain ways from a, a representational standpoint, from a narrative standpoint, in the sense that it's it's tapping into the nature of a community with a lot of different Latinos from different backgrounds Covers and, and a lot of ground wrestling with that. Serious about its immigration uh, themes. Yeah, but but story. But but story wise, it's actually a relatively small scale story in spite of the, the ensemble component. And that's a tension that it is never fully resolved. So you come out of the movie less thinking about what happened than just some individual kind of spectacular moments and the, ma- the magical it's realism of it. That the talent is breaking out the way they are. Anthony Ramos will be a much bigger star. He may be nominated. Uh, for an Oscar, um, the woman who's the abuela maybe nominated as well. She was very strong, um, and I think uh, you could get some tech uh, nominations as well, including cinematography and editing. It's going to come out very well at the end of the day, I think. Well, it's it's certainly it's the the launch that which I think it will be. It's the first kind of 
theatrical launch since the start of this weird weird world we've been living through that actually feels like it has a lot of potential for long-term success as a theatrical event movie. I, I don't remember how many what percentage of movie theaters have opened now at this point. I think it's 60% or something a little bit more than that at this point. But we are, it does seem like we're starting to see progress in terms of people feeling comfortable going to the movies again. So they just need a reason to go. This is, I, I mean, I, this is not just propaganda. It is a reason to go to a movie because it takes advantage of what a movie theater can do in a way. Like you will almost certainly get your money's worth from a pure, like visceral point of view. And by the so. way, Kate Gerbland did an, a good story this week about how some of the feel-good movies are, are playing well around uh, all the different platforms. And mm -hmm. I would certainly put this in the category of an exuberant uh, feel-good uh, movie. I, I, I really hope it does well. Yeah, and, and it'll be fascinating to see where we go from here, right? Because we're heading into a pretty complicated summer. I mean, F9, which we now know it's going to have its French premiere at Cannes, that's it's getting, you know, not maybe the screening in L.A., so I might have to see it. Uh, I, I still haven't seen it either. There are a couple of other screenings coming up. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, if we go you look at the paradigm of In the Heights and the paradigm of F9. They're not the same kind of reason you go to a movie theater, but they're both pretty convincing cases in some ways like F9 doesn't have to be as satisfying as In the Heights for audiences to feel like it was worth the trip you know okay they went to space we got to see it It was fun and maybe they were like not totally paying attention all the time and it doesn't matter that's a kind of passive movie going experience like i'll take a passive movie going experience like that over like the passive movie going experience where you watch something at home and you're looking at your phone every five minutes or whatever so i feel like that those two plus black widow being right around the corner is a very powerful I'm very eager to see it. No, look, what am I rooting for? I'm rooting for F9 to be huge. I'm rooting for theaters to survive. I'm rooting for uh, theaters all over the world to pull in crowds. Needless to say, I am not rooting against F9. I'm just saying that's it's not my cup of tea. And what are, what are you thinking about Black Widow? Because we've talked about this before. It's kind of like this strange thing with Disney putting it on premium VOD and theaters at the same time. But I'm, 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 I wrote a little piece in the New York Times about about this. Just a little thing in the op-ed section no, of the New York Times. <laughs> I do think I do think that 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 it's it's a big deal that Disney is withholding certain films from exclusive theatrical runs. And I think they shouldn't be. And I think they should be supporting the theaters. But as a number of people have pointed out to me, each of these studios has a different set of concerns that they're dealing with. Some of them are pulling uh, out some numbers uh, to from the pandemic and all the setbacks that they had during the pandemic. Some of them are trying to woo Wall Street and make Wall Street impressed with what they're doing. And and so there's all sorts of different factors that play into why these decisions are made, which I respect. But I do think the short term should not hurt the theaters. And that is what worries me. Uh, there is a definite ecosystem that is threatened right now, even if uh, <laughs> AMC is pretending uh, that they are part of an alternate reality. AMC lives on Reddit forums now, apparently. I think yeah. that's sort of their, their big model for, for success going forward. But, I, but I'm, I'm fascinated to see how the next month and change goes as we head into Cannes in that respect, because Cannes is such a, you know, 
theaters must survive kind of entity. And they're so, they're so invested in that. And that's why an F9 in some ways fits into that narrative. That's why they have that in tandem with, you know, French dispatch and all these other kinds. Like it, it is sort of designed around this idea of the big screen being so essential to launching these films. And we're not really seeing an alternative in the summer ecosystem. Like it's not like there's a bunch of movies coming up that aren't going to need the big screen to break through the noise. TV can. We had Mayor of Easttown a few weeks ago do that, but I don't I don't really see Here's the problem that worries me a lot. Um, when I did some reporting on this story, it was clear to me that it was actually the art houses and the specialty distributors that were um, in more uh, of a, I mean, the studio specialty distributors have other ways of getting their money back, but the true indies, some of the indies like um, Neon and A24 have partnerships with streamers so they can figure out, a IFC obviously has its own way of, of getting its movies out there that's also online. But it's a, it's a real uh, tricky wicket to get people to come to theaters. And the reason for that is partly that the mayor of East Towns and the streamers, all of those titles have so much noise and there's so many of them. There's such a plethora of choices that to cut through the cutter with clutter with with marketing, it's very difficult. And it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of muscle. And like in the Heights, like what Warner Brothers is doing with that movie. And that's why they're doing it. That's why they picked Tribeca. If you look at, I mean, I'll be curious to see what the numbers are, if we ever get some sense of the numbers for in the Heights on HBO Max, right? Because that's an option people will have. And if you look at the interviews that John M. Chu has been doing about the, it's, it's very much, it's, he hasn't done like Denis Villeneuve or one of these people and like lashed out at that, you know, the hand that fed him in that sense. But there's, it's, it's coded, right? That there's like, there's definitely an ongoing frustration with this because unless you have in the Heights, you can't, really make a, a compelling case that this is the only way you should see this this movie but in the height if, if in the heights can't do it nothing can in this particular moment that we're in maybe black widow but black widow people are going to watch that faster that we're talking about f9 and, and black widow will probably be much bigger and much bigger globally in the heights is probably more american i would suggest yeah, I might, you might be right, but I mean, the, the I don't know if... And people have to like musicals, which yeah, is another subset, too. No, that's, that's a fair point. I think, though, that Black Widow, because of the PVOD, what I, what I think is problematic about that is that in our particular information culture, it's like people want answers ASAP. They want information ASAP. You Google something when you want to know it. And the Marvel universe is all built around like instant gratification. We want to know what happens in this movie. Didn't she die in that other one? So is it just an origin story or what's going to happen? So they're just going to, if they can spend the money at home, they're just going to watch it as soon as they can. I don't think a lot, I don't, I don't think most people are inclined there to go out for that. There is some evidence that, that at least with Cruella, for example, that the there's arguments pro and con that, that they lost $10 million or so in theatrical box office, but what did they make when they were able to collect all the revenue per PVOD on Disney Plus? And, you know, did they, in, 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 in the overall uh, scheme of things, lose money? And there's an argument that some people are making that there's a bigger audience that will consume these movies and that everybody can thrive. And I think Tom Brueggemann is making that argument as well, that there's a day and date argument. Give everybody what they want, let them choose 
which which venue they want to be in. Um, I worry about that. I think it's better to have a, 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 a at least a three week exclusive window in theaters to build the brand. But with these big, big branded movies, they don't need to build the brand. Well, I was thinking about this also while watching In the Heights last night. I mean, it's fascinating to go back and have this mindset of what the past year has meant where you just didn't have the luxury of the big screen experience. So you couldn't pretend that it was the only way to watch a movie because you just didn't have that option. And I was I was just thinking about, you know, if you didn't have that nostalgic fixation on the big screen that got you excited about movies in the first place, which is a ge multiple generations of people at this point, do you really feel like this is such an essential experience? Do you are are you automatically going to to understand that? I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if that's true, and I and I'm, I I feel more and more like theatrical has to make that case each time out. So there's the frequent moviegoer that we all know about. The frequent moviegoer, often uh, younger, but sometimes older. The older moviegoer is the threatened species back in the theaters because they've gotten used to the convenience of watching at home. And, and they, they, it's a schlep, you know? And that's why I'm worried about the specialty box office. If you think about a movie like Christian Petzold, uh, Petzold's Undine. Um, Undina. Undina, which I liked much more uh, than you did. Um, I would say to you, uh, it's shocking how badly that did in theaters. A name auteur, somebody that people should be able to recognize. Well, but let me give you some other stuff. I mean, we, we look, look at the can lineup. There's movies that I think, I mean, well, let's see how the Gaspar Noe film uh, is received. If it's a crazy movie. Always has, always has some something else going for it. I think, yeah, the, the challenge is getting, luring people back to the movie. If you're talking about Art House, you're talking about something that really is a fully distinctive, unlike anything else out there, visionary experience that benefits from the theatrical context. Undina does, in, because Petzold is a very subtle director, it's it's but it's harder to make the case than I think something that is more viscerally involving or some or a, a big you know overt crowd pleaser or something Here's to that the effect. problem with a movie like undine a perfect example actually if all the critics say it's not the best movie that christian petzold has ever made a guy who has set a very high bar with barbara sure. and phoenix in transit then they're not going to go and that's a sad thing i think well, that that's the challenge of, of, of living in a polarized society where it's like everybody is either like, you know, yes or no. Rotten Tomatoes tells us rot or fresh and or fresh or rotten. And, and way, if you look at Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes on this movie, they're they're fresh. It's very fresh. Right. But I mean, it's it, not it, a home run in the 80s somewhere. Yeah, it's, it was, people want to see something that is either just yes like or no. Five or something. Yeah, exactly. And if you see something in the seventies, it's it's. I mean, I even though we use letter grades in our reviews, I always have ha had some misgivings about them because of that. Because people just want to know something that just reduces the information to whether or not it's worth their time, as opposed to giving you some context and then allowing you to sort of make your own sort of consumer decisions you know, by thinking things through. That's just not the society that we live in right now. And that that's that was a challenge without the pandemic. You know, it's hard to figure out what's worth your time.
So we uh, worked together on a story about the uh, festivals um, and what's going on and, and how things are proceeding forward. Um, and it was sort of a fun story to, to navigate. Um, so we've talked about Tribeca. One of the uh, things about Tribeca I would suggest is that it's a little disorganized, uh, at least from, from the perspective of a member of the press coming from in from out of town and trying yeah. to about and you're one of the precious few. It's not like this is a festival that track, uh, attracts a lot of inter- of out of town press. So, so uh, and I know other people on the staff have had a tough time figuring out, you know, how to get their pass and what it gives them and where to go. And and so, well, I guess we'll get it together uh, eventually. But it's not exactly, uh, you know, we're not we're, we're not being handheld here. And then uh, and then the other uh, the other thing that's coming up, of course, is Can, which I guess the the safety protocols are still an issue there. Some people are saying we do have to get um, some, uh, even if we're double vaxxed, that we have to get uh, a test before we get on a plane. It seems that 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 is the direction that that things are heading. But fortunately for Americans, and that's an important distinction, we don't have to quarantine when we arrive. The big challenge that Cannes faces is that this is a festival that is international, not only in terms of its programming, but in terms of the different industries it attracts. And this year, for industry and press from countries in South America or Africa, certain parts of Asia, if you're going to go, you have to quarantine for like two weeks. A lot of people aren't going to do that, and they have to get special permission to get around that, and a lot of people won't be able to. So that that is a big challenge for a festival that thrives on an international presence, does not want to be a localized festival in any respect. So it's going to so, be a pared-down, very small group that we're all going to see each other for dinner every night. I, I mean, I'm excited about that part of it, about it. getting we're back really into fun. it. We'll be the stalwart uh, crew, assuming we all do make Yeah, and there will be a European... European presence, we can expect to hear a bit more about how industries in France and Italy and a couple other places are working to sort of restart and and deal with their their own challenges. So I think that's going to be exciting. Cannes has added a couple films to the lineup. It's it's a stacked official selection. I mean, other festivals tend to program more movies, but Cannes usually has like fifty odd movies already. We're into the mid sixties now, and uh, you never know what else might pop up in there. So. I mean, it's a very discerning curatorial approach. Doesn't mean there can't be bad movies, but it's exciting. I have no worries about the the, the lineup and all the films we're going to see. And there's certainly plenty of people for us to interview, and we'll have more access to them. Uh, I suspect there will be uh, less, as as we will be having dinner at night, because I think there will be less uh, parties. Parties? That kind of thing. You know, and I don't, I don't know. Let's back up a second. I didn't, I didn't get into it, but there was a party for In the Heights. I believe it was not an official Tribeca party. That Tribeca is not, you know, putting out the, you know, putting on a big show in that respect. But there was a party at this place uh, in um, not too far from the theater at the Hudson, and um, I was in a crowded movie theater where movie stars introduced the movie and they weren't wearing masks and and I was, you know, milling about crowds and, and seeing people and all that. And it made me realize that this is, it, this is, as long as it's, there's, there's a possibility of having the events and gatherings and so forth, they're going to happen. So I would not be rule out the possibility that can will have parties can that there it, it could be more. It's full of, of beaches. It could be know. more social than we realize. But, but I think. Imagine, for example, one of the great parties every year is the Toronto 
party. Because of the timing of the festival, because it's in July, we won't be going to a Toronto party. And the fate of the Toronto Film Festival is very much um, up in the air as Canada has had much more trouble uh, getting their uh, population vaccinated in the kind of uh, way that we have in the US and in the UK. And Ontario itself is sort of uh, politically uh, hampered. And uh, and we may not be able to go to as Americans to Toronto physically, and they'll have to be a version of the festival they did last year. I understand it's bigger than the one last year, smaller than the usual footprint, and it will be on the model of last year, but things could change. If we get an opening and we can go, uh, I'm sure they will welcome us. And that leaves the leads us into the fall season, the open question, because obviously it was very discombobulated last year. We had the hybrid TIFF, New York, which was mostly online and drive-ins, so not really hybrid. I mean, the drive-ins were cool, but that's a different kind of experience. And then Telluride just chose to cancel because, like, what's the point of a festival like that being online, really? So now it's a, it's a totally different story, right? Because only Toronto seems like it could be a similar setup to last year. It's very likely that New York Film Festival is going to be a big indoor thing. I mean, I've already been to a big indoor New York Film Festival event. So that's that they're they're looking pretty good. And then Telluride seems like For it's sure. really in good shape to come back and be big. They're both going to benefit, unfortunately, at Toronto's expense because the people who book these these events, uh, the yeah, a the Hollywood talent is already back in in the uh, trenches uh, shooting all these movies that got backed up by the pandemic. They are, their schedules are very tight. They have to know where they're going and when, and they're going to book Telluride and New York uh, at the expense of of Toronto, uh, which is too bad for Toronto. It's not their fault. Yeah, I mean, Toronto will have to figure out how to, at the very least, even if it doesn't get the first of of certain films, that, that it could somehow have, They'll you know, a piece do of some it. Some kind of virtual uh, thing like they did last year with. And and let's not forget, they did technically launch a couple movies last year. I mean, they had a movie we still haven't okay. seen there, but because it was only in the drive-ins. But Halle Berry's directorial debut sold to Netflix for like $25 million at a TIFF last year. Penguin now, Bloom also sold. Yeah, exactly. So there there were some, so so there there are some, some reasons to do it if it is more localized, but has the access to a wider array of press. It, get, it, it does give them a unique angle. It's just not as obvious as, say, the VIP Telluride experience, which is, you know, so clearly targeted to Oscar voters and so forth. So we know that'll that'll just happen as it has before. So what's going to happen in, in Cannes, and, and, and it, which is going to be so important, is that for buyers and, and people who are, are, are looking to pick up, by the way, the pattern so far is that a lot of these things are selling ahead of the festival. Um, uh, they're they're the, the the they're booked for Cannes, but people aren't waiting for how it plays in Cannes. They're scooping them up. Why would the why would sign. the sales agents want to wait? I mean, it's such an unknown situation in terms of what you get out of it. So. It'll be the iffier, smaller titles that need to play with an audience and get well reviewed before they. What it sh- what that means is that the market is starving for product, and and they're picking things up sight unseen. Yeah. Exactly. So it's going to be picking them up off of online screenings without waiting to see what the viewers think. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a fascinating process of, you know, some of these films that were picked up early, you know, like Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta by IFC. Is that is does is that IFC basically, you know, saying that they see something in this that, that they they can make work irrespective of how critics react? Do they have a strong idea of how critics will react or is it something more just like they feel like they want to invest in a certain, you know, high bar of auteur cinema. I mean, there, there are different, different things you can take from that, but it's, it doesn't have the festival context. So it changes the equation. So the, what I would say there is that the, the combo of the buyer and the seller have figured out what the likely they have projected, what the likely scenario will be. And, and they have settled for what it is. Uh, this is a good way to go. And, 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 uh, in, in other words, if something that politic that that politically taboo, so, so, you know, in terms of, of of its sexual politics and religious politics, is definitely not going to be a mainstream uh, studio venture. Right, right. Whereas Sean Baker's new movie, which I'm told has all experienced actors, it's not first timers like he usually works with, including some porn actors. Uh, went to a24 which did florida project so that was that was neat that, to see that because you know now we have a new film we didn't even know was going to be part of the conversation at this time of year that has a buyer getting behind it who clearly has big plans for for you know the kind of impact they could have so um so i think it's going to be a fascinating experience to dig through a lot of these films because when we see them in the context of can it's not just going to be about you know who's going to get this out it's going to be what did these buyers at this particularly perilous moment see about these films to, and and decided you know that these these films should be part of their strategy aside from the fact that they obviously need stuff in their slate to put out into the world so so next up live screen talk yeah we're, we will get out of yes, these tiny boxes into a real see environment. see each other in person, hopefully more than <laughs> then. Uh, I think we have other plans to, to connect. But um, I look forward to seeing you yeah. in the flesh, Eric. So, so the second Friday of Tribeca, and I, I'm going to make sure I get the day right because if I say it wrong, someone will get mad. June 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern, Screen Talk is going live at the Tribeca Film Festival. Ticketing information and all that stuff should be live shortly if it's not already. And uh, I don't know exactly what the capacity issues are with all that stuff. But if anyone is in the New York area and would like to go, we hope you make the effort to show up and heckle us in person. If not, you'll get a chance to listen to it afterwards. And, and I can't wait to see you around the city. It, it, we always have the best time out here. I know we've had some good times in LA. We've done a couple things there together, Oscars and so forth. But when we're on the home turf, you know, all bets are off. So I'll see you around soon, I hope. Look forward. Okay. Bye. Bye.